Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is a webinar that's uh, dedicated to dealing with the uh, challenges of performing clinical research in valvular heart disease during the COVID and how one might adapt to this difficult time. Clinical trials are essential uh, for making progress in patient care and delays in generating knowledge and in bringing new treatments from clinical trials to our patients really is uh, problematic. Therefore, the goals of this webinar are to first discuss the many aspects of disruptions in the clinical research process, including the significant regional variations and also over time in the same region, things change. And we're going to talk about uh, from our panelists the various uh, workarounds, the adaptations, the uh, strategies to these changing local conditions. And the next slide, we have uh, an overview of the panelists, and I'll be introducing them uh, individually. Uh, next slide. This is the overall agenda, and so we're going to ask the clinical investigators, and we have three prominent investigators you all know well to comment on their experience and what they've learned. And we have uh, two representatives from the large device industries and, and how they're trying to adapt uh, their uh, clinical trial uh, infrastructure and personnel to COVID. And then we'll turn to FDA. And we have fortunately three uh, leaders from the FDA to discuss how they've been very proactive in helping us all understand how we might be able to uh, uh, proceed uh, safely and effectively. And then uh, Dr. Thorani, my co-moderator, will uh, lead uh, the discussion going over uh, some of the questions that you're free to submit using the Q&A icon on the bottom of your Zoom screen. And then uh, Vino will uh, wrap up. Uh, so uh, to begin, next slide. I want to pay attention, have all of you be at aware of this excellent document uh, that's been put out by the FDA that provides guidance. And it's a good document to circulate to your research team, your IRB, uh, your Office of, of Research, uh, because it contains much valuable advice and uh, some specific statements on how FDA has adapted. Next slide. So we're going to start from the clinical investigators with Dr. Sushil Kadali, who's the director at uh, Columbia Structural Heart and Valve Center. And Sushil, I have two questions for you regarding the patient screening and consenting phase. Um, after you've responded to the first, I'll ask you the, the second. The first question is, what have been the challenges for enrolling patients in the clinical trials at Columbia during the COVID pandemic? And please give us the perspective of your patients on this question. I think there's been a lot of challenges and it's been going in different phases. I mean, to start, once sort of the pandemic started, uh, we had to, all, all research and clinical research was shut down. And that was not related to COVID. Um, so our coordinators that interact with the patients and everything else were all reassigned um, to COVID-related research um, or COVID-related clinical activities. Uh, and then the, the challenge has been as we've restarted, uh, and it's been in phases, you know, initially, uh, it's all related to patient benefit and direct patient benefit is what we're allowed to restart. 
So we've had coordinators come back and we've slowly restarted uh, clinical trials initially with follow-up uh, and now with restarting uh, uh, new patient enrollments. Um, part, part of the challenge is this stepwise thing and how do, you, how do you start, when do you start, what trials do you restart at what point? And I think a lot of it is from the patient perspective and the physician perspective, the risk benefit calculation changes a bit, right? So mm -hmm. is there really a benefit for this patient enrolling in this study? You know, and early on, it, there really had to be. So if it was one device versus another, but they're comparable, then we, you know, the, the benefit of enrolling in a clinical trial may have been less because the clinical trial required certain things. Like if I do a tavern now, I wasn't doing a, a coronary uh, angiography. I would look at the CTA. But if they're in a clinical trial for a TAVR study, one device versus another, they'd need a cath. It would require another visit to the hospital, another potential risk of exposure. They would need protocol echoes. So unless it was device versus device and there was another treatment option, I think from the patient perspective, they didn't want to do those extra visits. They wanted to minimize. We did telehealth, come in for the CTA pre-ops, then just come for the procedure and, and minimize interactions. And, and, and so that was different, but what's changed is, so trials like uh, for patients with severe TR that are not operable, patients with uh, aortic insufficiency that are not operable, where Yenival may be the only option, or in TR maybe, you know, Triluminate or Pascal or replacement may be the only option. And that's, there's a real benefit to the patient. And then those patients are driving forward and they wanna be a part of the enroll in those studies, but they don't have the option because uh, we hadn't restarted. And so we have this backlog of patients in that category that we have to figure out how to restart. Um, and in terms of restarting that, it becomes challenging because industry has to support it. Can industry travel? Um, and recently we had an issue with, with clinical support. All of the specialists except one was in a state that was a, a New York state quarantine. So they had to f figure out how to get a specialist to support the case. Our hospital doesn't want more than one specialist in a room. Some of these complex cases, you need imaging support, device prep support, other device support, and you know, can you bring two or three people? So there, there's been a lot of these challenges as we go forward, but I, um, I think the risk benefit has changed. Thank you. Uh, my final question for you, Soshiel, is, is about consenting patients. Uh, have you adapted that process as your IRB have the clinical trial sponsors uh, address that issue about changing consenting? Uh, because I don't want patients to commit unnecessarily. So we've done the consent and you know, usually you can't present a case till everything is there, but I don't want to put patients through other workups. So I might, we do a generalized screening consent and I might send the echo images or the CT images to the sponsor and say, is this within reason? Before I bring the patient back for clinical trial related activities unnecessarily, uh, sometimes doing the stepwise approach and say, is it likely that this patient will be a candidate? And I think the threshold to bring them back is if, if they're likely a candidate, rather than trying to do all of the workup at once and then send it to it. Because the patients really want to minimize those visits. And even from the hospital side, we want to. So we've changed the consent in that we tend to do more of a screening consent to start, sort of look at outside echoes, look at the outside TEE, uh, and if they're not clearly not going to be a candidate, then we don't put them through a protocol T at our institution or bring them down for the CT. So do a screening and then figure out how we're going to triage the patient. Great. Thanks, Hoshiel. So next we're going to talk about the hospital phase of clinical research. And we have Mark Reisman, who's section head of interventional cardiology and director of cardiovascular emerging technologies at the University of Washington. And Mark, I have a couple questions for you. The first 
patients may be hesitant to come to the hospital during COVID. How are you maintaining vigilance when they come for their procedure that the patient has the lowest possible risk of COVID exposure, while at the same time minimizing any interruption of protocol-driven requirements? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for the opportunity to uh, participate uh, in this um, webinar. I think the in-hospital phase um, is really um, at a point where the, the patient has um, a lot of information already. Um, but in terms of the specific issue that really does create the most anxiety, it's really around um, what they consider their risk, their risk of getting COVID. So before I go there, what I'll say is that prior to any uh, procedure right now at our center, the University of Washington, um, we are doing uniform testing on all patients. Um, and we basically have a window of about 72 hours. Beyond that window, um, if they are tested, we ask them actually to be tested again. Uh, so that's number one. With regard to them coming into the hospital and the concerns about that, um, I think one, uh, one, one thing that I, I tried to make as clear as possible is that at some level, the hospital is really one of the safer places in the community. Um, everybody has been tested. Uh, we're somewhat religious about uh, everyone wearing masks. Obviously, we're doing the appropriate um, pre-entry into the hospital testing, uh, temperatures, questions. So I, I think there's a, a level of confidence that I hope I could relay to the patient to allow them to feel more confident uh, once they enter the system. Uh, many of these are older folks um, who uh, come with um, their significant others. There is concern around that. I do um, provide them some guidance about visitation um, requirements during COVID, the number of people who should visit, how they should visit. Um, and so to the best that I can, I try to um, really be reassuring. Thank you, Mark. That's really a comprehensive response that uh, got on both questions. Uh, I guess I just would ask you a follow-up on COVID testing. Uh, so you allow patients to get their COVID testing more locally where they live and then send you all the results. Is that how you work that? Yeah, generally speaking, you know, we have a, a large catchment area. Um, the very rural places, um, we're usually able to identify a place for them to get tested. Um, in our state, we do have some hot spots and we're, we're a little bit more careful and, um, and, and just ascertain the test as close to the procedure as possible. But clearly, um, getting them access to testing, reassuring our staff that we're not uh, exposing our teams uh, to any additional risk. And then again, as I already described, uh, how do I uh, create reassurance for the patient uh, once they enter the system? Thanks, Mark. So now the patient uh, moves to the next phase of uh, a participation in a clinical trial, the, the follow-up. And we have Dr. Michael Mack, who's a cardiac surgeon in Plano, Texas, former president of STS and PI of several of the major clinical trials that have transformed patient care in this area. So I'll start uh, with a few questions regarding the follow-up of patients in these trials and the impact of COVID on endpoints. Have you changed how you're following patients after they've been treated in clinical trials? A few months ago, 
uh, COVID was fairly inactive in Texas, and now you have a surge. How have you adapted to these different uh, uh, COVID activity levels? Well, John, you're right. It is a, a, a very dynamic uh, uh, environment. Uh, when the pandemic started, uh, we, we moved to a, a virtual follow-up uh, uh, modality uh, in that uh, our, our research coordinators were all working remotely from home uh, and patients were reluctant to come in uh, for visits. So all our data collection moved to um, over the phone uh, by coordinators contacting directly the patients, as well as telehealth virtual visits. Um, that works for everything except for the imaging follow-up that's routinely needed after um, uh, uh, valvular heart disease trials. Uh, and so what we have done is postponed a lot of those imaging based upon uh, uh, what phase we are in terms of reopening again. Uh, but we're sure that we do schedule an imaging date that um, you know we have to be flexible about. We've also tried to um, have patients go to their own local MDs and get imaging studies there, but uh, that's not a perfect solution because Oftentimes, the imaging studies aren't of the sufficient quality that uh, required for uh, research uh, protocols. Um, <clears throat> we had gotten to the stage of, of patients coming back in, uh, uh, not being as reluctant to come back in, and having our coordinators uh, uh, work on site again. Uh, but with the recent uh, surge uh, in Texas again, there's this increasing reluctance uh, again for patients to come. Uh, and also we're having our coordinators back working remotely uh, again. I would say the key to all this, however, is more frequent communication between the research coordinators and the patients so that we don't lose contact in this virtual environment. Thanks, uh, Mike. Uh, my follow-up question is the, the endpoints of clinical trials may be impacted by COVID. Are you assessing patients during follow-up, specifically when they have adverse events, uh, of the possible impact of COVID on uh, their adverse event, which unfortunately could even involve uh, death? Well, I think this is a a, a learning healthcare environment, and I think that we um, we know that there are uh, uh, systemic complications, mainly associated with uh, systemic inflammation and vasculitis uh, uh, that occurs. Uh, we aren't doing anything specifically uh, because we don't know what adverse complications may be associated with COVID. If a patient has an adverse event. Uh, we are getting them tested for COVID at the time, and we're obviously logging adverse events. Uh, but knowing now whether they're possibly related to COVID or not, I, I don't think anybody knows that yet. So if a patient has an adverse event, it's getting COVID testing at the time and then logging all these adverse events so that we can look back on this and determine whether it could possibly it was COVID related or not. Thank, thank you, Mike.
Now we'll turn to our industry colleagues for their perspectives on the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we have, fortunately, uh, Bharati Satraman from Abbott and Dominic Aloko from Boston Scientific to offer uh, their perspectives and how they have adapted uh, to this. So Bharati, can you speak to the challenges you're facing during uh, the startup and enrollment phase of these clinical trials? Sure. Um, thank you so much for the invite. Uh, very happy to be here. Um, so we are part of a global medical device business, um, and Structural Heart is just one of uh, many businesses within Abbott. And we run clinical trials across all of our business, across all regions uh, of the world. Um, and as, as different regions have been hit with the pandemic um, in the, at different phases, we took a, a general approach towards uh, our clinical trials. Um, and our first uh, 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 response was to inform sites that our uh, enrollment into our studies was not a priority and that priority must be given to reporting subject safety and follow-up um, and protocol deviations. Um, and then as uh, sites and regions have started to get out of this pandemic at different phases again, we work with individually with sites um, on increasing their clinical research activity as they, they are able to. Um, so this, this virus uh, is going to be around for a long time and we just are trying to you know, make sure that we can figure out ways to work um, through all of these uh, challenges. Thank you, Brafi. Dom, can you speak to the challenge you're seeing during a study follow-up uh, where You've heard some of the clinical investigators talk about uh, their, they've, they've adapted locally. How about uh, Boston in terms of uh, globally? What, what has uh, been your uh, experience so far? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for inviting me to be on the panel. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, certainly, we're facing many challenges with clinical trial follow-up as a result of COVID. I want to highlight three, and, and hopefully I'll try and identify uh, you know, potential solutions as well as just the, the challenges. But the three I'd highlight are missed visits and missing data, monitoring study data, and then, uh, you know, as Dr. Mack touched on, identifying when adverse events are related to COVID. Uh, you know, the first one, I think it's the most obvious one, is, is with patients missing visits and, and the impact that has on, on the study. You know, expensive, complicated studies that physicians and patients have put a lot of effort into. And if we don't have adequate follow-up, that really compromises the, the entire study. And, and as has been pointed out, there are, you know, many patients are missing visits now uh, because uh, sites have restrictions on non-essential visits, research staff aren't available to support follow-up visits, and the patients don't want to come into the hospital because they're scared of getting COVID. And I think really the point to make here is that any data is better than, than no data. And if a patient doesn't have any follow-up, that's when it really hurts the study. But telephone follow-up is better than no follow-up. Late follow-up is better than no follow-up. And a late telephone follow-up visit is better than no follow-up. And if you just talk to the patient on the phone and confirm that they're alive, Right? Mortality is a primary endpoint in many, or a component of the primary endpoint in many of these trials, and do an assessment for adverse events by phone, that puts us in dramatically better shape than if there is no, no follow-up. 
So I think that's, uh, and really appreciate the efforts of all of the investigative sites to do that. Have to say also really appreciate uh, and publicly say this, FDA's flexibility. I think FDA has been a great partner in, in helping to maximize the, the value of these studies and, and really help them accomplish what they're trying to for physicians and patients. So that's, that's missing data and missed visit. Uh, monitoring is another big challenge for us. You know, typically in a major study, uh, we would do on-site monitoring at, at some or all sites. And obviously now that's not possible, uh, but we still want to ensure that we're getting high quality data in the study. And what I say there is that we have kind of rapidly transitioned to remote monitoring. And we certainly never anticipated doing or trying to do remote monitoring on the scale we're, we're trying to do it now. So we're certainly learning as we go. And, and it's a little bit of, of building the airplane in, in flight. Um, but I think that can be an effective uh, approach. It's different in different countries and at different, in different sites uh, because of some of the restrictions. But you know, a lot of what a monitor does is, is review documents that in many cases are stored online. And you, know, you can do that remotely just as well as you can at a site. So I think the jury's a little bit still out, but I'm, I'm optimistic that, that remote monitoring is gonna be really useful in that regard. And then the last uh, challenge that, that we're trying to assess is just understanding whether deaths and adverse events are related to COVID or not. And I think ultimately the solution there is gonna entail modification to the case report forms and probably to the CEC process to, to get a handle on that. What I would say in the interim is, is really useful is if there is a suspicion, if the event is known to be related to COVID or that there's a suspicion that it's related to COVID, if that is flagged when the adverse event is reported, you know, and you say COVID pneumonia instead of just pneumonia or stroke potentially related to COVID, that's really useful and it kind of flags it to us as a sponsor and we can kind of scrutinize and investigate it, it more. Uh, so, that, you know, hopefully that's a summary of kind of some of the, the challenges we're facing now. Uh, obviously, there's, uh, there are many. Thank you, Dom and, and Brothy. Those are very important points you've made. And one of the issues that comes up is post-COVID, assuming we get there, uh, some of these lessons learned may change how we can conduct clinical trials in more efficient and perhaps patient convenient ways. And maybe we'll come back to that. So our next group are the members of the cardiovascular device group at the FDA who've been proactive in formulating the regulatory response to COVID and its potential impact on the safety of patients and research personnel. And we have uh, Drs. Zuckerman, Wu, and Farb have joined us on this panel. And so the first question will go to Dr. Zuckerman. Bram, do current FDA regulations allow the flexibility and pragmatism needed in clinical trial design, execution, and analysis prompted by the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, thanks, John. Uh, before I get to uh, answering that key question, I would just like to thank the ACC and STS for putting on this very important uh, webinar. I think a key theme throughout this webinar will be that even though we're uh, separated with this very disruptive 
um, epidemic, the need for increased communication is uh, paramount. Uh, the second thing that I've heard is that from the prior speakers, clinical trials can go forward, but we just need to make sure that safety of patients and healthcare practitioners is paramount. And certainly that would be the first FDA principle. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to your um, essential question, Yes, the FDA uh, firmly believes that we have the flexibility and pragmatism in our current regulatory framework to uh, move the clinical trial process forward, even in a very disruptive time like the time we're experiencing right now. And thank you for uh, pointing out uh, the FDA clinical trials guidance document, which is really, as you stated, essential reading for understanding the FDA basic perspective on conduct of clinical trials. Uh, that document came out in March and as a living document, the Q&A section continues to be updated as we hear more from uh, sponsors and investigators about current problems. Uh, more recently, a corresponding statistics guidance document has also been published by FDA to address some of the real world uh, problems that Dom just uh, mentioned, and perhaps we can discuss a little bit further. So, you know, certainly from a hundred foot view, I think um, there's enough information there to uh, move forward, but the real challenge is, um, as uh, Dom and Barathi have pointed out, to then uh, think about how um, basic principles uh, illustrated in these guidance documents can be applied to a specific trial. Uh, one size won't fit all, and it's really incumbent on FDA sponsor and investigators to figure out the best uh, modifications of the clinical trials design, execution, and analysis. And certainly this is where increased uh, communication with regulators is really of paramount uh, importance at this point in time. Thank you. Thank you, Bram. Chang Fu, what new resources uh, can be developed to assist industry and investigators to deal with clinical trial issues post, posed by the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, thanks, John, for the uh, question. I also would like to echo um, what Bram said, uh, uh, to thank uh, the STS and ACC and the TBD registry to um, host this uh, webinar. Um, as we all know, um, the pandemic is impacting every aspect of the clinical trial ecosystem. Um, the challenges uh, we are facing um, apparently you know, cannot be resolved by any stakeholder alone. So to tackle the pandemic-related uh, challenges and the many other challenges in the valvular disease uh, arena, 
um, the Hardware Collaboratory was recently formed. Um, so the collaboratory was modeled after the NIH collaboratory and also the um, successful uh, heart failure collaboratory. The mission um, of the uh, uh, collaboratory is to um, really create a, a dynamic, um, interactive collaboration community of all stakeholders um, under a single umbrella uh, with the goal of uh, advancing uh, regulatory policy uh, addressing knowledge gaps and creating meaningful advances um, in our understanding of valvular diseases. Um, I want to um, you know, emphasize that the HHS, uh, including um, the three, agencies, three sister agencies on the HHS, um, FDA, CMS, and NIH, are very um, are committed uh, to this effort. Um, so, um, and a special thanks to um, Dr. Uh, Mike, Dr. Michael Mack, and uh, Dr. Marie Leon for uh, getting this uh, physician and patient-centered um, organization off the ground. Um, you know, one of the very uh, first pilot projects identified the, uh, by the collaboratory is a task force of a pandemic impact on cardiovascular research. Um, the planning of the task force is currently on uh, way. Um, a two-day workshop and think tank meeting is um, uh, planned for mid-August or early September. Um, the task force will examine uh, many of the challenges post posted by the um, uh, post by the uh, pandemic, uh, such as the uh, design, execution, and analysis of the clinical trials. Um, remote follow-up, uh, telehealth, um, as well as creative and adaptive uh, regulatory policies uh, in response to the pandemic. The task force um, will come up with um, concrete recommendations on how to address those uh, challenges. So um, stay tuned and um, you know, be part of this effort um, if you are interested. Um, in the meantime, um, other organizations are also actively uh, working on addressing these uh, challenges. Um, for example, um, the Heart Failure Collaboratory has uh, developed a patient-centered case report form uh, for COVID-19. Um, it is freely available to all. Uh, we have heard that um, uh, some um, industry sponsors and hospitals have started to use that uh, case report form to collect data. W one other point um, I want to make is, uh, you know, while the pandemic poses many significant challenges to um, clinical research, um, it also creates uh, many unique opportunities uh, for the clinical trial ecosystem to really re-examine what we have been comfortably doing for years, but may not have been uh, efficient. So. Mm -hmm. Um, whatever role you personally or your organization is playing uh, in clinical research, um, be creative, um, be adaptive, and also um, think outside the box. Um, of course, um, the guiding compass um, we all need to follow um, is patient safety and um, also our own safety, um, as well as data integrity. Um, I, I do believe that um, you know many of the different things we are trying out 
today will stay um, after the pandemic is uh, uh, behind us mm. uh, if they are proven um, to work well. Um, the ecosystem uh, will sure um, become stronger coming out of this uh, pandemic. That's, that's a very uh, thoughtful, important point, Chang Fu. Thanks uh, for that. And I'm sure in the Q&A period, we'll come back to many of the panelists and, and the uh, various attendees. Please send in uh, your, your thoughts, your, your questions for the panel. Uh, the final uh, question goes to Andy Farb at the FDA. And this, Andy, is about the role uh, of post-market uh, surveillance. Uh, what role does that play in this uh, current uh, crisis? And, and what are your thoughts and adaptations to this important aspect of uh, following uh, devices that have been approved? Uh, so th thanks, John. I very much appreciate the, the opportunity to participate with my uh, FDA colleagues uh, in this uh, webinar. So. Um, very good question. You know, post-approval studies and, and post-market surveillance platforms like the TVT registry uh, continue to be important uh, during the time when COVID-19 is essentially reshaping healthcare in the United States. Um, we, as, we need to acknowledge that data capture and data monitoring and auditing that are so in integral parts of post-market surveillance are likely to be more difficult. And so, Remote monitoring like Dom alluded to and risk-based approaches will make this monitoring more efficient and hopefully uh, still keep the integrity of these large and important data sets uh, viable. There's also the, um, the FDA voluntary user reports. Um, these are especially useful when we're dealing with approved devices or devices available through emergency use authorizations. Uh, these uh, voluntary reports can help bring to light uh, any new safety or effectiveness concerns uh, about these uh, devices, particularly when uh, been used in challenging situations like uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus will be here for the foreseeable future, perhaps uh, permanently, uh, hopefully will uh, the uh, acuity um, um, uh, and the disease associated with that will decline as we improve our treatments and have a vaccine available. But, and the, and the important part of the thinking about post-market surveillance is in this setting, uh, we have the opportunity to utilize platforms like TVT registry and others to provide some key insights into patient selection. And they may change as a function of patients' willingness to undergo procedures, we may be seeing sicker patients or those with more complex disease coming to uh, the forefront to, for enrollment and treatment and then uh, inclusion in our registries as more stable or less sick patients may be less willing to come to see their doctor or undergo procedures. So there may be a shift in the uh, complexity did, uh, by, uh, with, these, uh, with these procedures. Thank you, Andy. That's uh, very useful. Go ahead. Oh, so am, I, um, am I still? Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, you're there. Okay, sure. All right, great. So um, the other things that may change, of course, is the in-lab and in-hospital procedures that we've heard about. And these modifications uh, would be put in place in response to COVID-19. And of course, post-procedure follow-up uh, and assessment methodologies. 
We do expect uh, increased use of in-home in evaluations in both pre-market and post-market studies. And these uh, approaches may be more patient-centric. Uh, I think the uh, consensus is telemedicine is here to stay, likely to be carried forward post-pandemic. And we expect greater use of patient-reported outcome tools and questionnaires, and as well as digital tools, including uh, vital signs apps, activity trackers, some of which will require validation and may be prone to uh, a bias that we need to take into consideration as we evaluate the data. In-home testing and imaging is going to be, in, we expect to see increasingly used in, in, in post-market surveillance. Um, and these um, uh, new uh, techniques uh, can be uh, useful um, to get the uh, metrics that we are, are, are so helpful in evolving the safety and effectiveness uh, of, of, the, of our interventions, such as six-minute walk, uh, biomarkers, home echo, et cetera. I think also we just need to be humble. We're still in the very early stages of the learning curve of understanding the impact of uh, COVID-19 and the impact of this uh, disease process on the clinical trial and patient care ecosystems. Thanks, Andy. Sounds like we need to be ready to make house calls again. The practice of physicians many years ago, it's back to uh, clinical research uh, and clinical care. So I'm going to hand over the moderation to my colleague and co-chair of the TBT Registry Steering Committee, uh, Vino Ferrani. So Vino, take it away. Great. Thank you so much, John. I've already learned a lot in the last uh, 38 minutes uh, regarding research in, in cardiovascular. And there's something that I want to just give acknowledgement to Bram, who said this um, in one of our calls in preparation for this. And, and Bram said, CV research is still very important nationally. Um, the amount of disease is still rampant, uh, even though we've uh, concentrated on COVID for a while. Uh, we all believe that it can be done safely. Uh, however, we need to address the fears of the patient and we need to choose the right patients for the clinical trials. And that's um, just uh, some words of wisdom from someone who's done this for a long time from Bram. I just wanted to point that out. So uh, as far as questions go, we don't have too many in the Q&A box so I'm going to, um, if we could go to the gallery view here, I'm going to just uh, start talking about with our, with our esteemed panel. I, I'm not sure that there's a better panel to discuss cardiovascular research in the United States than what we have uh, currently on this call. So let's go through a couple of topics here. Let's talk about uh, uh, what do we do, and I'll start with the three physicians at this point, Michael uh, and, um, and Sushil um, and also Mark. What do we do with uh, the amount of resources that are available? And some of the people that are getting furloughed are the non-essential clinical staff, and some of those are research nurses. How do we, and coordinators, valve coordinators, how do we deal with that? What are you doing in your centers? After we go through this, Joan Michaels, I'm gonna ask you what the TBT registry is doing. So we'll talk about resources, um, and then we're gonna talk to, about Joan with the TBT registry. So uh, Mike, Mike, we'll start with you first. Well, uh, you're right, there is constraint on all resources, not only because of uh, cuts of non-essential personnel, uh, we had to cut 10% of our research staff, but also because our whole research infrastructure is so COVID-facing uh, COVID right now. 
the uh, number of COVID trials um, uh, is immense and we've had to resource um, uh, uh, clinical research staff to uh, undertake and to administer uh, uh, all the COVID research trials. That has put some of the cardiovascular trials um, in, in the background. Uh, it also makes uh, um, uh, getting timely data entry and that more difficult into it. So we have prioritized the early feasibility trials and, and, and those trials that are most life-saving. And as Shushil uh, said at the beginning, uh, uh, those trials that are device versus device, that we have an alternative that's non-research, uh, we do just so that we don't overburden the already constrained resources that mm -hmm. are focused uh, on the trials that are most uh, uh, life-saving in cardiovascular disease, but also so that we can staff the, the COVID trials. So Mike, you're prioritizing your studies that you want to get on board um, because of the, the, the resources that are limited. Mark and Sushil, anything that you want to add? Sushil, I know you're muted. Um, but uh, Marcus Sushil, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll just add that I, I agree that the type of research that should be done is the one that extends the the clinical opportunity or the therapeutic therapeutic opportunity for the patient. Um, I think that's that's really critical. I think the two opposing forces we have during the COVID crisis, which are consequential, is that we are you know furloughing some folks and others are working from home. At the same time, many of the studies that we're involved in are extremely complex in terms of having those resources available. Um, and I know we use the term non-essential, but in, in, in terms of research, many of those coordinators and those infrastructure people are quite essential. Um, and I'll speak specifically about the tricuspid studies and the mitral studies where a tremendous amount of energy uh, in, in ascertaining the clinical status of the patient um, is critical to really determine the outcomes of those studies. Yeah, and you, you're right, Mark. I, I want to also highlight that Jackie Smith here at, at our institution at Piedmont runs a phenomenal team, and they're all essential um, in, in, in all regards because even though they're not taking care of patients, they're providing new therapies that are uh, sometimes revolutionizing their care. So, Sheila, anything to add to this? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think uh, uh, Mark and uh, Mike said it well. Uh, I think their, their resources are cut. Uh, people are reassigned to COVID-related research. But the issue is a lot of these research infrastructures, at least in our institution, are all separate. We have our interventional research group, right? So then but to do COVID research, some of them have been outsourced to someone in the pulmonary department. And how do the resources, how do we share resources when they're limited? And, you know, we have a research budget and we've done it well with enrolling in trials. And so we're able to pay the staff. But if we don't start enrolling again, we're not going to get, uh, we got to start enrolling studies to keep our research staff on, uh, you know, paid. Um, yep. And that becomes one of the, one of the challenges. Um, and, and so whatever it is, we if, even if it's the lowest hanging fruit, if it doesn't add to the visits, we look at trials and say, can we at least participate in this without using too much resources and at the same time bringing in revenue to allow us to continue the, the enterprise. And one other thing we did is we used to have coordinators to Mark's point that were tricuspid valve this study or, or the aortic valve this study. Now people have to do follow-up and everyone's 
participating in every study and the coordinators are not assigned to specific studies. So they had to sort of take on a more broader role than focusing on a specific study, which may affect some of the quality of the data you get in because the same as we do these coordinators get really specific on a study and know all the details very well but now when they have to work across 30 studies you know they might miss a few things here and there and that becomes a challenge for the research group to become you know work more broadly i think that's important and we'll talk about protocol deviations and other things in a minute i'm going to have fda after joan michaels answered her, her question cheng fu and and bram and andy i'm going to come to you from the fda point of view about about leniency of some of the endpoints and how we can deal with some of these uh, uh, other issues that we'll have from an FDA point of view. But Joan, let's go to you. Um, what has the TBT registry done? Because you're also running trials to accommodate COVID and where, where we are in the country today uh, with this virus. Sure, thank you. Thanks for including me. And um, what listening to everyone and how the world is dealing with uh, research, we're Within the TBT registry, we've tried to stay on top of um, the, the hardships and the hurdles of, um, remember TBT registry has both pre-procedural requirements and um, perhaps even more important, the post-procedural 30 day and one year requirements. So we've tried to stay on top of um, some questions and concerns that sites have had early on uh, from way back in March about the concern regarding how do we get the follow-up done. So we were pretty quick to turn out what we call our guidance memo, which is on our website. We send it out to everyone. We've since even had the opportunity to update it and basically encourage sites to um, continue to get as much information that they can without putting the patient in harm's way. And by that, I mean pre-procedurally, you could do a lot of your um, KCCQ, which is very important, your five meter walk test, which is very important. Um, you still can accomplish that by either telehealth or a phone call, getting the New York Heart Association and the KCCQ and we're encouraging the TAVR folks and the MITRE folks to get the six minute walk test and the five meter walk test the day of the procedure. So that perhaps delays the patient from coming in another visit pre-procedurally. Now post-procedurally, we ask for not only um, quality of life metrics and um, you know again, what their status is, how are they doing in general, but also we ask for some lab work and the all important echo. And what we're asking sites to do is to continue business as usual within reason. But if we ask for a discharge echo, as well as a 30 day echo, we're asking to um, get at least one of those. So if you cannot get the discharge echo, you obviously say not performed, but then do everything you can to get that 30 day echo because we're watching the 30 days out any amount of PBL that might occur. If the patient is coming in and going out very quickly so you don't have that opportunity to do the discharge echo, say not perform, but then do everything you can to get that 30-day echo, either at their physician's office or if it's safe for them to come back into the building. If the lab work, the EKG and the echo are not able to be obtained, it very nicely outlines it in the guidance memo. Again, it is very, again, common sense, but just say you're not able to get those testing points, 
because the patient's follow-up came during COVID and document that in the medical record. Someone mentioned, I think it might've been Dom about, uh, you know, the, the timelines. We have cutoffs between the time frame for doing your 30-day follow-up as well as doing your one-year follow-up. And we're asking as best as you can, get it within that follow-up, but we certainly will, you know, enter it in even if you, even if the timeline is a little bit extended. And, um, you know, document in the medical record if you're not able to get it. But again, post-procedurally, you can get the KCCQ and the New York Heart Classification and the patient status over the phone. So that's um, how we're trying to do it. Great. Thank you so much. And if anybody on the pan uh, panel, any of you have questions, just please raise your hand. I'll make sure to call you if somebody is saying something that you have a question or a comment about. I do want to turn this over to the, uh, um, the, uh, the FDA, Bram and Andy and, and Cheng Fu. How, um, obviously, this has completely changed your pathway of how you evaluate studies. I know that there's this quite onerous on you and how, we, how, you, um, how companies and you are working together and doing uh, changes in, uh, in clinical research during the time of COVID. Will you become more lenient? Or is this going to change the way you look at endpoints? Are you going to become more lenient on the amount of tests that need to be done at one month, at three months, at nine months, at a year, um, as far as imaging goes? What's uh, as far as uh, protocol deviations because of COVID and patients are unable to come back? Does that affect how you um, will evaluate these trials? So I think maybe uh, either Bram or Shang Fu, if you want to tackle that first and your thoughts about that. Okay, uh, Vino, uh, great question, uh, central question here. And let me start first and then Chung Fu uh, can continue. Uh, but the approach that we use is, uh, number one, how do we maintain uh, good science? After all, we're doing human uh, investigation here, and we want to hopefully be able to uh, interpret results reasonably at the end of the day. And so let me compliment uh, Joan and her colleagues from TVT on the uh, last segment that we just heard because, you know, they quickly recognize that we have a disruptive problem here and they've uh, made some very practical and reasonable um, alterations to the protocol. I think at the end of the day still leaves them in a good position because they will have acquired uh, good scientific data. So from an FDA perspective, uh, we would, one, uh, be interested in a manufacturer working with their clinician, investigator, consultants in a similar type manner, as Joan pointed out, especially if uh, certain sites are being uh, heavily disrupted. And then, you know, as pointed out in the uh, clinical trials guidance, there are always mechanisms for um, making the protocol modifications primarily dependent on how significant the modifications are, whether they can be uh, reported to FDA in so-called uh, five-day notices or in uh, supplements and can a uh, variety of modifications be reported together, et cetera. Those details aren't so important for this discussion because 
The main theme would be uh, one we alluded to earlier. The FDA needs increased communication with the investigator community and sponsors at this time of a national emergency. In this case, it would be uh, communication with Dr. Wu, and we'll, you know, he'll be glad to walk you through the process of making those sorts of modifications in an efficient and optimal uh, manner. So, Chung Fu, why don't you take over at this point? Yeah, that's great, Brian. Thank you. You know, um, definitely, um, you know, FDA will be more uh, flexible. Um, and uh, we have been doing this uh, since the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic. And uh, so I had many conversations with the sponsors and, uh, you know, discussing how to um, deal with those, uh, you know, visits, how to deal with, uh, you know, data, uh, data collection. And some of them um, actually, um, you know, have uh, created a addendum and, uh, to the clinical protocol. Um, outline the you know um, more uh, flexible um, um, you know data collection uh, schedule, and um, so once the you know the pandemic is over, so this you know this this addendum will be pulled um, from the uh, the protocol. So and we don't have to you know go back and forth to change the main protocol. So this this you know it has been. Um, um, you know the the the, the uh, common um, theme and, and throughout this uh, pandemic. I think that's that's very important, Chengfu. I think that's a. Uh, I, I liked your word that you use. You use flexible. I use lenient. I think there's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> there's a difference between the two. I, I noticed you changed the word lenient that I put in there. So let's talk a little mm -hmm. bit with the industry, um, uh, Dom and Barthi. Um, you know, you guys are very important partners. A lot of the trials currently, at least in, in cardiovascular and specifically valve disease, are coming through our industry partners um, uh, and less so through the government agencies. So I think your, your involvement is very important. How have you changed your clinical study protocols and statistics in order to, to deal with this? Are you changing this uh, quickly? Are you able to adapt on how you're going to do this? And how do you then take this to the sites, which is really important? So maybe Parthi, we'll start with you first on that. I think you're on mute, Parthi, or we don't hear you. Dom, uh, you want? Yeah, you want to maybe talk? I can. I can. Yeah, maybe Parthi, we can't hear you, so maybe you can. Um, you, know, you know what? What I'd say we're trying to do is, you know, very much along the lines of what we've been talking about, build in, build our protocols with the the knowledge, or I really should say the uncertainty around COVID in the future. And we're, we're trying to be more flexible around windows, uh, visit windows. Explain that, Dom. Are you, are you saying that if a window was 30 days prior, now you're going to a 60 or 90 day window because this becomes important for the sites? Yeah, no, so absolutely. That's one of the things we're doing. I think, you know, we're also just looking hard at what is kind of essential for the purpose of a clinical trial and what is a nice to have. In the example I'll give there is I think some of the imaging we do in our trials is, is redundant. And, you know, so in Reprise 3, the pivotal approval study for the Lotus valve, I think we require seven or eight post-procedure echoes at various yeah, some times. Some of us remember, remember doing all those echoes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I, I will guarantee that any that you or any of the clinicians or FDA can can interpret that patient's outcome perfectly well with five or six of those echoes and not seven or eight of those echoes. And, and so we're, we're thinking hard about what imaging is actually critical and what imaging is is less critical. And, and in, you know, in a future where it may not be so easy to get these imaging studies, uh, we're reducing it to the, the critical elements. And the last thing I'll say is, as I think others have brought up, um, the idea of going to the patient and doing things, you know, in the patient's home in terms of imaging studies or follow up by, by telephone or video, that I think is, is something that is here to stay and, and will help in a, in a COVID world. And, and is not something that's going to compromise quality. So, Dom, so, uh, so the question that people have said to me is that, you know, you come and certify, industry comes and certifies our Echo Lab and says, this is a great Echo Lab, and yeah. this is great, especially in those, for instance, the mitral and tricuspid space where it's a, the valvular disease is more um, dynamic than it is in aortic stenosis, which is very, in some ways, black and white. Um, and now we're going home to someone and we don't get quality data. And then Cheng Fu release, uh, um, yeah. receives that data and says, you know, I'm not sure that this is great. You're kind of somewhere in the middle. So how do you deal with that? And I don't know, Parthi, if, you're, if your numbers are, if your microphone's working, no, still not, still not working. Um, you might, I wonder if she could log off and log back in. Is that possible, Carol, for her to do that? Um, so how do we how do we address that component of it? Mike Mack is the past uh, or the PI of CoAP, and I can imagine that you know having a dynamic as functional MR. How do we have the reliability that the ease of COVID from doing out of main hospital echoes to what the FDA wants to see to where PIs like Mike Mack are saying I'm comfortable with data? How do we get past that? Are we going to be able to get past that? And what's your experience with that? And it'd be nice for maybe Cheng Fu or Bram to also comment on that or Andy, because I think that's critical. Echoes are so critical to what we do. I'm glad you brought that up, Dom. Yeah, you know, so, so my take on that is that, you know, you can change the location of the echo, but you can't compromise the quality of the echo. So if you have an echo done in someone's home, it needs to be done by someone who is, you know, highly skilled echocardiographer who has been trained on the requirements for the study and can get a high quality study. Yeah, Mike, uh, Mike Mack, just your thoughts on, on some of these high-end imaging procedures being done at home. Well, I, I think Don, uh, Dom said it right. What's must have and what's nice to have. And I think we do have to look at the number that we need. Um, secondly, um, you know, as we're seeing already um, ahead of the procedures, uh, some of them we required a TEE ahead of time. We know that puts uh, operators at risk. So, you know, can we go with a TTE instead of a TEE? And we're finding frequently we can. Thirdly, as uh, Dom alluded to, I think we are seeing an acceleration in um, technology to allow uh, remote uh, echo acquisition, uh, both from um, uh, the um, uh, technology that you don't need a sonographer to be able to uh, uh, acquire it from some of the new 
um, uh, AI-related uh, acquisition um, 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 technology out there to ultimately we'll see an acceleration of being able to get echoes over your iPhone. Now the question is, are they gonna be good enough quality to use for regulatory purposes? Uh, I think uh, right now, no, but will they ultimately be? I think absolutely yes. It, and so going back to Chengfu and, and uh, Bram, are, have you seen yet, now we've been in this for four to five months, are you seeing some quality decreases and how concerned are you about that? Again, um, you know, we want to make uh, wise uh, decisions when redesigning our clinical uh, trials. So I think the um, points that were just made by uh, Dom and Mike Mack are relevant ones. Uh, they're asking whether uh, this is really needed at the end of the day to decide for FDA device regulatory approval purposes, whether the device is safe and effective or has a reasonable benefit risk uh, ratio. Uh, our bar for approval hasn't changed, but I think you clearly heard that in certain contexts, we don't need overkill. We don't need what we call the Christmas tree trial with all the bells and whistles. And, you know, this is the sort of conversation that we're very interested in uh, right now uh, with investigators and industry to better define uh, what is necessary for uh, good science. Uh, the only additional thought I might have is um, now's the time also to get the input of non-invasive echocardiographers to see how they can also change the ecosystem to improve quality at uh, more sites to perhaps um, incentivize core echo labs to run in more of a real-time fashion. So if we're having data quality problems with some of our new uh, alternatives, uh, a company like BSC recognizes that sooner rather than later. But this is the discussion that we need to uh, engender, Vino, and we look yeah. forward to more of this. No, I, I think you're right. And just and I think that it would be nice, and Parthi, maybe you can comment on this, is industry working together as a group instead of each company individually to try to come up with some standard idea or pathways during this time period? Is that something that's in the works, or how does that working out for you guys as you kind of talk uh, together? Or is it still every company on its own? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the four or five major companies are studying the same type of valves. Is there any um, coordination at all? amongst the companies and is that something that maybe would help FDA out? Actually, um, I don't think we are actually, appro it's appropriate for us to work with other industry um, members to on protocols or stat plans and so forth. So I, I do feel kind of uh, FDA is uh, probably burdened with looking at different protocols coming to them and, and different, you know, uh, approaches uh, for stat plans and um, uh, clinical studies. So, um, no, so the answer is no. Um, but we, we do, at least from, from our perspective, we want to be proactive about addressing uh, what could be potential issues uh, that we are running into in our protocols 
and uh, write those into our staff plans and, and plan for primary analyses and sensitivity analyses and so forth. So that's, that's the approach we are taking. Um, and we've done, we have several protocols and we've just taken an individualized approach depending on what the endpoints are, what the population is and the follow-up, et cetera. I just want to cover maybe two more topics. Uh, so you know, uh, could I yeah. comment yeah, there because Brent, it's please. such a critical comment that uh, you just made. Uh, the tradition has been we all go it alone, but, um, you know, certainly from an FDA and public health perspective, and I thought, think you heard Chung Fu mention this a little bit earlier, we're really uh, trying to move the collaboratory process ahead in the pre-competitive space, whether it's for heart failure development or heart valve device development. As you've uh, noted, there are common themes that we can more efficiently and legally and without proprietary information being disclosed, talk about to promote good science. And that's the challenge that we uh, have right now, the one that you've uh, underlined. Yeah. How do we develop a heart valve collaboratory that, especially with this national crisis, really gets to the heart of the matter with the good points you've been mentioning? Yeah. No, I think you're right, Rem. I think that there are certain areas that are that we should all be able to um, come together on, and there's some areas that, of course, we'll have to stay in our own in our own silos, in our own lanes. That obviously we can't um, disclose um, secrets uh, to each other. So, um, so Sheila, I want to just end with two other things. One, Chenku, I'd want you to comment um, on where uh, databases like the Sweetheart has done can be used more effectively, where the FDA thinks is a possibility for running prospective trials. So, Chenku, just think about that a little bit. But, so Sheila, I'm going to come to you and talk about remote proctoring. You talked a little about early feasibility and that you're leaning towards that. How do you get proctored for this? And have you done remote proctoring? Is that something that's working for you? Um, how are you uh, able to get um, uh, maybe companies coming in remotely and looking at stuff? Can you just comment a little about the procedural end of it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, just one quick qu uh, point on what, what was just said, though. Um, yeah, you know, I think that getting the echoes at home, getting the quality, but it can be okay for a lot of different things. But when the echo is the primary endpoint of the study, that, that's where I worry or that it's, you take a big chance. So sure you're breaking up a little bit. Goes to home. Sorry, uh, an echo's done at home. Uh, and yeah. Do we get the response and the feedback? Yeah. Uh, on the quality of the echo, so that we, we don't lose that primary endpoint. But how do you do that without biasing the results? Like, can the core lab say this study was not adequate? I need to repeat it within the window. And if we're going to start doing this, we just have to be careful that we don't lose lose those uh, yeah, very important those endpoints. Great comment. Um, in terms of remote proctoring, uh, we have not done it yet. We've in the process of setting it up. The, the challenge is for certain things, I think it's fine. Um, you know, for a trial like Yenoval, um, where you need to sort of just look at the locators, get the angio and, and, and tell them what views to get for deployment. I think that remote proctoring is probably okay. But for some of these technologies like uh, uh, triluminate or, or clasp or tricuspid uh, clipping or, or clasping, uh, I think it's challenging because there's such an interplay between the echo, the operator, 
other people's thoughts and that feedback, mm -hmm. even if you have the technology, I don't think it's the same. And, and I worry that it, you'll lose something in that, when, in those type of studies. Great, thank you. So maybe we'll, um, uh, unless John has uh, other comments, I think that we'll end with maybe the future. Um, and we've talked about this in the past um, and Cheng Fu is, uh, and, and, um, and John Lassinger, before he, before he left the FDA, uh, talked also about this. Mike Mack and I were involved in some of the meetings about this. Are we potentially changing the future, looking at something like COVID and what it's done to us? Does it accelerate the idea of database, perspective databases where we use databases for follow-up, which is CMS and the National Death Index and other ways of doing stuff? Are we, Cheng Fu, are we moving in that direction? based on what we're seeing here, or you think that maybe not so, not so fast? Um, I think we have made, you know, um, um, taking um, baby steps and, uh, you know, those baby steps are, are, are necessary before we, we can, um, you know, run. So the, you know, the, the, the idea of um, running pragmatics trials, um, you know, um, you know, using you know registries or other platform, you know, has been around for many years, and uh, it, you know, FDA remain uh, very interested um, um, in, 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 in you know in this topic. So um, there are efforts um, um, on you know discussions um, ongoing about um, you know running this kind of studies um, um, using existing uh, you know registry infrastructure, for example, the you know the bicuspid study. Bicuspid Teva study you have been you know talking about, right? Um, you know it it all so in terms of the data collection, I think it all boils down to you know what needs to know and what it what is nice to know. So as FDA reviewers, we you know constantly um, uh, you know um, um, uh, evaluate um, you know those two aspects. Whenever you know question we ask you know we ask ourselves. Hey, is this question a nice to know question or uh, a need to know question? I think this is this, this applies equally to data collection, right? We tend to uh, over collect data and just just think that hey, we're we're already doing this and let's just get the data in case something you know we we we're going to need it one day. But I think the the probably the, the majority of data would not be you know uh, looked at. Um, um, you know, after the after the trial, um, so we have been talking about this you know, lean case report form, um, and there are also uh, efforts underway to um, to you know start look at that um, probably um, for example in you know in micro space because that's the um, that's the emerging area and in the future I I envision that you know we probably will uh, expand that to tricuspid and other device areas. Thanks, Shengfu. You're right. There's sometimes a gluttony of data that we have, I think, in some ways. So mm -hmm. I think that as we wrap this up now, um, I wanted to, especially John and I both want to thank um, a lot of people who put this uh, webinar together, the STS and ACC, uh, Joan Michaels and Carol Crone. We really appreciate you doing that. Um, our clinical partners, uh, Michael Mack, uh, Mark Riesman, and Sukhil Kodali, thank you very much. Um, our industry partners, Dom and Barthi, thank you. And most importantly, our FDA, who um, we have really had a phenomenal relationship now. And during COVID, I think it's gotten even stronger how, how much we want to work together. And I do want to say that um, uh, I do give a lot of credit to the FDA, and Marty and Mike, for the Heart Valve Collaboratory, which is now 
is not in its infancy anymore. It's really getting some legs. And uh, we're going to hopefully make a, a significant impact with cardiovascular slash valve uh, research in the United States. So we, uh, on behalf of John and I, we want to thank all of our panelists for joining us. Um, and uh, please send us any questions that you may have uh, from the audience. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you. Adios, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.